That's great. Thanks so much uh, for reading, Gareth. Um, time has gone away from us a little bit this morning, so uh, we're going we're gonna to jump straight in. Uh, let me just raise this up a little bit. Uh, there we go. Gareth's size at the moment. That's better. Lovely. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll go straight into this passage. Oh, thanks, Johnny. Heavenly Father, these words are of such significance. They speak some of the most precious truths to us. Lord, whatever has been going on in our minds and our hearts up until this moment, we pray that supernaturally you would still our hearts, that we might hear the profound things you are saying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we started looking at Romans 8 last week and we were thinking about the question, has anything changed? The, the sense in which we put our faith in Jesus, we, we believe the gospel and yet we still sin. Surely if the gospel's worked, if Jesus is true and I put my faith in him, well surely things would have changed. I wouldn't carry on sinning. Or we still suffer, still feel pain and heartache. Or we still die. If Jesus, why do I sin? Why do I suffer? Why do I die? Has anything changed? And in Romans 8, Paul is addressing those kind of questions. He is trying to assure us that yes, despite appearances, everything has changed. We saw that last week. We saw the difference the gospel makes in our fight against sin. That the Lord Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And this week, we're going to see the difference the Lord Jesus makes as we suffer. We're going to see that the Christian has help and hope and purpose in their suffering. That is the difference that the gospel has made. If you've got a a sheet as you came in, you'll see an outline of where we're going. Um, But let's have a look at that first idea. We have hope in our suffering. Now, hope is a deeply powerful emotion. Although maybe emotion isn't quite the right word. Perhaps you could say hope is a a deeply powerful stance or position that you take. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Hope can save. Or verse 25, hope gives endurance. Enables you to wait patiently to endure through all kinds of suffering. Hope is incredibly powerful. I've mentioned Viktor Frankl before. He was a psychologist who survived the Nazi concentration camps. And afterwards, he he wrote about his experience and the experience of his kind of fellow uh, inmates or or, or whatever you want to, however you want to describe them, his roommates. And he wrote it all down in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Now, at one point in this book, he recounts the, the, the story of someone who was, he was sharing a room with who was convinced that the war was going to end March the 30th, 1943. That's what his hope was in. He thought he was going to be set free after that date. Well, March the 30th approached and it was clear the war wasn't going to end. And Frankel describes how on the 29th of March, this guy suddenly became ill with a high temperature. On the 30th of March, he became delirious and he lost consciousness. And then on the 31st of March, he died. Frankel says he lost all hope. He, he writes this, and it might be on the screen. 
Only those who were orientated towards the future, towards a goal in the future, towards a meaning to fulfill in the future, were likely to survive. Hope is powerful, as Paul puts it, in this hope we were saved. See, hope can get us through the worst of suffering. So what is the hope that the Christian has? Well, listen to verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We hope in something so wonderful and a future that is so glorious that it isn't even worth comparing to the sufferings we now experience. Now, don't mishear Paul. He is not belittling our present sufferings. He is someone who knows how awful and terrible the pain of living in this world can be. But instead, Paul is saying, as great as your suffering is now, so great will your glory be in the future. Actually, it's not quite that, is it? It's more than that. He's saying, the weight of your suffering now, which can feel so heavy upon our hearts, it's nothing compared to the weight of the glory you will experience one day. Our future glory far outweighs our present suffering. In fact, so good it is our future glory that the whole of creation longs for it. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He says something similar in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Creation is groaning. It is longing for the day when the children of God will be glorified. Why is that? Why does creation long for that day when we will be glorified? It's because creation's destiny is tied to our destiny. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, talking about God subjecting creation to frustration, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Okay, so originally God created mankind, humanity, to rule over his creation, not to exploit it, but to release its potential that the Lord had put into it. To continually take what is good and true and beautiful in God's world and enjoy it and use it and transform it into even greater goodness, truth and beauty. But when humanity in Adam rebelled against God, not only did we come under God's curse, but creation did as well. Instead of being a creation that is bursting and overflowing with life, it's now in bondage to decay. It is infected with death and disease. And so creation longs to be liberated, to be set free. And that liberation will only happen when we, Christians, followers of Christ, are liberated as well. 
Creation, if you like, will only be what it should be when we become what we should be. And that is why creation longs for our glorification. Now, I just want to take a little break here. I think that means we need to be a little bit careful about some of the kind of narrative around the kind of climate change discussion. Because sometimes when people talk about the environmental problems that we face, there can be this underlying, sometimes stated, sometimes unstated view that creation would be better off without humanity. You know, David Attenborough talks about human beings as being a plague on the earth. What you do with a plague, well, you get rid of it. Now, you know, on one hand, I understand what he means. Our, our greed and our thoughtlessness and our indifference to the impact of our actions, those attitudes do damage our planet. Do you see what Romans 8 is saying? Yes, creation groans. It doesn't groan, though, for less humanity. It groans for a restored humanity. The answer to climate change isn't to get rid of us humans. No, God's purpose for creation. It's not that the earth would be covered in wild forests and wild animals. No, instead, God's purpose for creation is very different. Remember his instruction to humanity back in Genesis 1. Bring order and fullness to the earth. Be creative. Take air into your lungs and turn it into song. Take wood from the trees and turn it into buildings and furniture. Harvest beans and wheat and turn them into coffee and sourdough bread and so on. The purpose of creation is for humanity to interact with it, to cultivate it, to release its potential. That is why creation longs and groans, not for the removal of humanity, but for the restoration of humanity when God's children will be glorified. Only then will creation be set free to fulfill its purpose, to be changed from one degree of beauty and splendor into a greater degree of beauty and splendor as we rightly interact with it. So do you see how weighty and how precious our future glory is? The whole of creation is groaning and longing for it. That's how great our hope is. But of course, it's not only creation that longs for that future. We do as well. That's what Paul says in verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans, and we groan as well for that future hope. And we groan because, well, we feel the brokenness, don't we, of of life now. We long for that day when everything will be put right. But there is something that heightens our groaning now. We, We don't just groan because we feel the pain of life in this world. We groan because we have tasted something of that glory that is to come. It's sometimes like that, isn't it? To take biscuits, okay? If all you ever knew was Sainsbury's basic digestive biscuits, you'd probably be happy enough to eat them for the rest of your life. But then someone gives you a chocolate-coated hobnob biscuit, and then you have tasted glory. If you then have to go back to the Sainsbury's basic digestive where you're groaning, you know there is something better out there, and you're longing for it. 
That's what it's like for the Christian. We hope and groan and long for the future because we've tasted it. Paul writes, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. As Christians, the Lord has already given us his spirit. Even now, God himself dwells within us. And that means we have tasted glory. We've tasted the glory of divine love as the Father demonstrates his love for us on the cross. We've tasted the glory of sonship. Even now, we are adopted and brought into the family of God. We've tasted the glory of prayer and worship. We know something of what it is to be free from the power of sin and to have renewed desires to show compassion and kindness, to love the unlovely and show forgiveness to those who don't seem to deserve it. We've tasted those things, the spirit at work in us. We've tasted glory. But it is only a foretaste. And that is why we groan. We know how good it could be. And yet we know still how encumbered we already are by our sin and our sinful nature. So we groan and we hope and we long for that future, verse 23. We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What are we hoping for? The full adoption, bringing into the the fullness of the blessing of being part of God's family and the redemption of our bodies. Let's be careful here. Paul isn't saying... Our hope is to be set free from our physical bodies as if true freedom and true glory is a body-free existence. That's not what he's saying. No, we long for the redemption of our bodies. The day when our bodies will be set free from the sinful nature that so infects us now. Our thinking, our feeling, our doing, all infected by that sinful nature. In his poem, The Caged Skylark, Gerald Manley Hopkins, he compares human existence to that of a caged bird. And he seems to be saying in the first half, our our, our bodies bind us. Their frailty and their brokenness inhibit us. They feel like cages. And he thinks he's going to end his poem by saying that the hope is that we'll be set free from these bodies. But he doesn't say that. He finishes like this, man's spirit will be flesh bound, body bound, when found at its best, but unencumbered when his bones are risen. When will we be at our best? Not when we're free from our bodies. No, we'll be at our best when we are flesh bound with bodies, but unencumbered. Bodies that are no longer infected with sin and decay and death. When our bones are risen, then we will be clothed in glory. Our future glory is weighty. It is wonderful. Creation groans for it. We groan for it. It means liberation and freedom. Freedom for us to be humanity at its best and freedom for creation to be creation at its best. And that glorious future, that hope, The sense in which it saves us. It gives us strength. It enables us to endure even now through all suffering. When I was studying at college, the the name of my tutor um, was a a guy called David Field. 
He's a, a man who knows suffering. For many years, his daughter lived with cystic fibrosis until a year or so back, that disease, that ailment took her life. I remember something very powerful he said to us in our tutor group one time when I was back in college about suffering. He said, whatever the suffering is you are facing, ask this question. How will this look on resurrection morning? How will it look on resurrection morning? When creation is liberated from its bondage to decay and destruction. When I have been fully redeemed and adopted and liberated from Satan's sin and death. And when I haven't only tasted glory, but I've been clothed in glory. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. See, when I face heartbreak or cancer or bereavement, when my body fades or my life is darkened by depression or loneliness or poverty, when it feels all-consuming, at some point I need to ask myself, how will this look on resurrection morning? When I'm home with my Father and my Savior and all creation is rejoicing in its liberation. Yes, suffering is awful now. And nothing in the gospel promises to take away the pain in the present, but the gospel does give us hope a hope that enables us to endure. How will this look on resurrection morning? Look, maybe you're thinking, I, I see that. But, but when suffering is raw, when pain is at its worst, it is looking forward to the future, all we have at that moment. What about help now? Or secondly, we have help in our weakness. We, we don't face suffering on our own. The Spirit helps us now. So verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Spot something in here. He doesn't take us out of our weakness and our suffering, does he, the Holy Spirit? He helps us in our suffering. How does he do that? Well, he prays to God the Father on our behalf. Look on in verse 26. We, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, prays on our behalf with groans that words cannot express. It's true, isn't it? It, Often in the moment of crisis, when it feels as though the earth has given way, we don't know what to pray. Our minds can be numb with pain or grief. Our our strength can be all gone. We can't think straight. Often the best we can do is just cry out, Lord, help me. I don't know what to pray. And even if we could think straight, it's not clear what the right thing to pray would be. But wonderfully, the Spirit takes our fumbling and uncertain prayers and he speaks to God on our behalf. Actually, he doesn't just speak, he groans. He communicates something of our pain and our hurt and our confusion. And when he prays, when he groans to God on our behalf, look what he's praying, verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, that's God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
He prays, he groans in accordance with God's will. God's will is that which is ultimately best for us. When we're hurting and we're oppressed by heartache or grief, we don't know that what the best thing is in that moment. But the Spirit does. And he asks God to bring about that which is ultimately best for us, the will of God. Imagine a young child, maybe two or three years old. They fall over. Sadly, they break their leg. Okay, Sad, isn't it? Now, at that point, all they know is that they need help. They don't know exactly what kind of help. A two-year-old girl doesn't turn around and say, Mother, I have broken my leg. Take me to the hospital, inform the doctors that my bone will need to be realigned and I will need a cast and it needs to be pink. All that two-year-old can do at that moment is throw up their arms and cry out and maybe ask for help. But the parent understands exactly what they need. They take them to the hospital, they tell the doctors what the problem is and they ensure what happens next is for the child's best. We're like that small child when we suffer. We know we need help, but we don't know exactly what help we need. And so we throw up our arms, we cry, Lord, I do not know what to pray for, but help me. And the spirit who understands perfectly what our problem is, knows exactly what to pray for. The spirit helps us in our suffering. I was with someone this week and their future is very bleak, medically and Humanly speaking, there isn't much that can be done for him. And often when I'm with him, I feel very helpless. What, what, what can I say? What, what, what do I pray for? Do I pray for a miracle? I don't know what to pray for. That's why I find this verse so comforting. I groan with him, and the Spirit groans with us both. And he prays to the Father exactly the right thing. If you've not yet experienced that sense of helplessness, then one day you will. And when you do, remember you have help in your suffering. Throw up your arms, cry out, Lord, help. And the Spirit will groan with you to the Father on your behalf. So we have hope in our suffering. How will this look on resurrection morning? We have help in our suffering. The spirit groans with us. But then sometimes, sometimes our suffering is so hard and you can find yourself asking, can't you? Why, Lord? Why would you do this to me? So finally, very briefly, we have purpose in our weakness and our suffering. Look down at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There is a purpose in our suffering. Because God works all things, uses all things for our good. And by all things, I think Paul means all things. He means arthritis. He means migraines. He means heartbreak and loneliness. There is a purpose. God uses our suffering for our good, but it doesn't feel that way. A few years back, a friend of mine emailed me and he talked about how the last few months of his life had been very difficult and he couldn't understand what God was doing. 
And then he wrote this, and he was talking about his first child, who was a baby at the time, called Theo. He said, I've been struck many times by the way in which Theo hates some of the decisions I make concerning him. There are places he's not allowed to go, things he cannot touch, nappy changes which must be endured, bedtimes which must be observed. To him, none of this makes any sense. It seems needlessly cruel. But of course, there are always good reasons for these things. Reasons which only I know and which are far more wide-reaching than the tiny world Theo knows at that moment. When I don't understand what the Heavenly Father is doing, it is useful to learn the lesson from Theo. You know, at times we're going to feel like that little baby, aren't we? Pushed and pulled about by God, sometimes painful, sometimes it leaves us weeping. We can't see any purpose in it. But just as Theo's mother and father were working for his good, so our Heavenly Father is working for our good. And you know what? We know a little bit more than Theo does. We know what that good is. Paul goes on, verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is the great good that God is at work in us to achieve. To make us more like his son, Jesus. To depend on the Father more like Jesus did. To hold loosely to the things of this world like Jesus did. To learn patience and compassion. And deeper faith like Jesus had. There is purpose in our suffering. Through it all, the Lord is working to make us more like Christ. Do you know what? I I think if you're talking to someone who is in the midst of heartbreak, it may not help to say that right then. (laughs) I think you mourn with those who mourn. But if you're not suffering at the moment, now is the time you need to hear this. There is purpose in it. And just as we finish, what's more, there is no amount of suffering that can stop God accomplishing that purpose. That's the point of verses 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. If we love God, then we are in the middle of this unstoppable chain of events. We have been predestined. And if we've been predestined or chosen, then we have been called. And if we've been called into the kingdom of Christ, then we have been justified, made righteous. And if we've been justified, then we will be glorified. Paul even puts it in the past tense. He's so certain of it. If we love God, we are part of an unstoppable chain of events that no amount of suffering can prevent. God will accomplish his purpose in us. We will be glorified, made more and more into the likeness of his son, Jesus. We think nothing's changed, don't we? But don't you see? gospel never promised to save us from our suffering now but it did promise to give us hope and help and purpose in the midst of our suffering and that is exactly what we have a moment of quiet and I'm going to pray
consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Heavenly Father, we've heard some profound things this morning. Please may each of us at least grasp one wonderful truth that we can hold on to in the midst of suffering. We think of the Lord Jesus as he approached the cross. It was the joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross that meant he could endure it. And Lord, as we approach whatever suffering you might bring into our lives, may it be the joy of glory to come that will help us to endure it. In Jesus' name, amen.